Good evening. As I say, uh, at this point, because I normally can't get my students to stop talking either, and I tend to be quite rude to them, but since you're all respected guests of the LAC, I have to be much more polite this evening. I'm really pleased to see so many people here. We really have a very good turnout. I was a little bit worried because we've had a day of industrial action at the LAC today, and I was hoping that it wouldn't uh, disrupt the meeting, but it clearly hasn't. Because uh, I'm very pleased uh, to introduce Dr. Helena Gale, uh, who's talking to us this evening. She needs no other introduction than to say that she's the president and CEO of Care USA, and I don't think uh, a position in the uh, in the civic sex sector goes very much higher than that. Uh, I was interested talking to her a few minutes ago about the fact that these days private sector development and clearly building up small businesses and trying to generate jobs has indeed become a major aspect of their work. I felt for a very long time that there's been a very big emphasis on creating human rights uh, and a much smaller emphasis on creating jobs for human beings. Uh, and since I think that the best way to create human rights for human beings is to provide them with well-paid jobs and well-paid businesses, I don't think that there's anything more important at the moment, especially in this period of crisis when people are losing their jobs all over the world where... 30-40% of young people in southern Europe are losing their jobs. Creating jobs, sustaining employment cannot be... There cannot be a more important issue than that. And I'm therefore very pleased to have Helena here to talk to us about what they're doing. She doesn't plan to talk for too long. Uh, I might sort of raise some issues with her at the end of her talk, but we are particularly looking forward to an exchange with the audience this evening. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thanks uh, so much, and uh, it's really a real pleasure for me to be here to talk about this today. Uh, and as Dr. Brett said, you know, what I want to do really is to provide kind of a broad overview of the work that we're doing in this area of how we can use private sector approaches for long-term development, talk some about care and who we are, but then really focus on some of the ways that we're approaching this, and hopefully do it um, briefly enough that we can then have a dialogue, because I think this is a really exciting area. And... Um, you know, for me, as a non-economist, I'm actually a physician by background, turn um, uh, NGO uh, leader. Uh, it's really a little bit intimidating to be here in this group of people who uh, think about the issue of economics all the time. So, uh, but it is also a real pleasure because I think this is an incredibly dynamic area in um, the arena of global development. So let me just start by saying a few things um, about CARE and CARE's mission and, and who we are. And, and um, I hope a lot of people know about CARE. Uh, it's an organization that's been around for a long time. It's, our roots 
started in 1945, and we were the cooperative for American remittances to Europe because we started as the organization that provided care packages to countries in Europe that had been affected by World War II. So we started as an organization that really focused on providing basic needs food and other basic um, commodities, but we've really evolved in that time in a way that uh, I think is very consistent with the types of things we're going to talk about today. So our mission today is to end global poverty and do that in a way that really looks at how do we achieve equity and social justice, equal, uh, very important part of our mission. You know, kind of if you think about it, um, uh, this is just kind of a, um, a, a way of kind of diagra- diagrammatically looking at this. You know, we have moved from an organization that looked at giving people fish to hopefully building capacity and teaching people to fish to really looking more broadly at how are we ensuring that there are fish in the stream and that there aren't impediments to the thing, to making sure that people have a long-term and a sustainable um, approach to meeting their needs. So really, this continuum from providing aid to really doing development, and it's similar to uh, what Professor Britt said, really looking at this issue of how do you do this in a sustainable way, and how do you use different kinds of approaches than how we started out in, in a very um, traditional aid sort of mode. Just to give you some, uh, again, this is just to give some background of who, you know, who we are. We're, we're an organization that has a broad mission, broad scope. We estimate that we reached somewhere in the range of 80 million people last year, almost 1,000 poverty-fighting projects operating in 84 countries around the world, and a very broad mission um, and, and areas of focus from agriculture to education to health. We still rem- uh, respond to emergencies, microfinance, access to clean and safe drinking water. But all of that um, really with a key focus on how can we make sure that we do this in a sustainable way and look at the drivers for true economic um, change and empowerment. As part of our work, core to our work, we put a big focus on empowering girls and women. And you'll hear me talk about that when I talk about the work in economic development because two reasons. First of all, um, girls and women are disproportionately impacted by poverty throughout the world, and whether you look at uh, the number of people who, who are illiterate or who don't have access to health services, um, who don't have economic opportunities. So women are disproportionately impacted by poverty. So just from a numerical basis, that's where you, if that's where the issues are, that's where you go. But we also know that if you can change the life of girls and women, you have the greatest chance for having long-lasting impact. And particularly in this issue of economic empowerment, we put a real focus on looking at how do we make sure that when we look at the work that we do, we have a gender lens, that we look at inclusion, and we make sure that women are um, very much part of the process. So let me say, go into some of our work specifically in the private sector, and starting out with why. So, you know, um, as you mentioned, obviously business is integral to development. Um, Jobs are a key part of economic growth. So clearly business needs to be part of it. And one of the things that has been incredibly encouraging to me and why this is such an exciting area of opportunity is that more and more we're seeing 
companies that are recognizing how important it is to partner with organizations like ours in a way that helps to advance their business needs, but also helps to create positive social change. And these days, uh, I go to meetings where I hear business CEOs who almost sound like the CEO of a development NGO, and I think this blurring of lines is, is coming more and more. So, so it's very encouraging. On the other hand, we also know that some of the work that the private sector is doing is not always sustainable and is not always long-term and can often be done in a way that is very short-term and doesn't necessarily have the kind of long-term um, uh, long potential or even really looking at how is the work that's being done actually having a positive social outcome for poor populations. So great and encouraging, but there's still some, um, uh, still some uh, ways to go. So why do we partner with them, and how can private sector approaches really yield lasting results? And that's what I want to talk a little bit more about, why we, we feel this is so essential and some of the ways in which we're doing that. This is just a schematic that looks at our approach to economic development. We originally started a lot of this work by focusing on microfinance. And as many people know, there was a huge microfinance revolution in many ways that really started um, and was the, the entry point to looking at using more private sector approaches to development. Our approach, different than a lot of the um, early, uh, a lot of the approaches that people talked a lot about, is much more a savings-led um, microfinance approach using village savings and loans associations, and I'll talk about that in more detail, to look at how people begin by saving assets uh, in a way that can really reach the, the uh, ultra-poor or people who oftentimes have very little to save as an entry point into building businesses and building assets. But we move from looking only at this savings-led microfinance approaches to then thinking more broadly about a multi-asset approach to private sector um, um, partnerships, looking at things like inclusive value chain, looking at the role of policy and advocacy in businesses and how can businesses actually be partners in shifting the policy dialogue around uh, pro-poor business um, approaches, social enterprises, sm small um, businesses that have social, social outcomes as well as economic outcomes, employee engagement, how can employees within companies also get involved by sharing their expertise and other issues, and, the, and consumer engagement, which also um, uh, a huge part of getting consumers as well engaged in how they can help to create social value. So first, just talking about uh, access to financial services, since this was our entry point. And one of our big focus areas has been looking at bringing this savings-led approach uh, to microfinance in Africa through a program we call Afri Access Africa. Uh, the goal is to reach 30 million people, especially women, for the reasons that I mentioned, by 2018 with a suite of financial services that includes savings, insurance, and ultimately also some loans. Three pillars um, at the micro level, really looking at these very small village savings and loans um, 
um, cooperatives at the middle level looking how can these savings communities that build up assets that are tend to be informal and reach the the unbanked, how can we now use that as a basis to get people linked into uh, formal financial institutions? And then at the macro level through this program, we're also um, involved in investments through um, um, Microvest, which is um, um, an investment fund that's managing um, investments on behalf of CARE. And uh, again, as mentioned, through this work, looking at um, how do we make sure that we look at the overall skill sets and um, empowering the mainly women who are involved in these um, savings and loans. In a little bit more detail, this is just a schematic that says what we want to do, really looking at starting at this ladder at the bottom, um, looking at those who are the poorest and often financially excluded who can sometimes come together to save no more than 10 cents um, or, or so a week. And in these savings groups, the members in many of these savings groups save an average of $58. So we're talking about people who are really the ultra poor, 10 cents a week. But identifying those, um, helping them to develop groups where they build their capacity, learn how to pool resources, learn how to manage resources together, and then provide loans um, that um, they can charge interest, and then use those loans as ways of starting businesses that generate more resources that then go into increasing the savings in their groups, uh, all the way up to looking at how can we get that, that uh, group of people into the more formal um, financial system. And we're now doing that, building on this basis of um, village savings and loans, working with banks um, from local and regional banks in Africa all the way to banks like Barclays that, are, that we now are helping to build the financial infrastructure that allows these unbanked to become part of the bank and to really look at this 2.5 billion people who don't have, who didn't formally have entree into the formal financial system and really look at this, this um, notion of greater and broader financial inclusion, which clearly uh, both has huge impact for the individuals, but also is a driver for, for uh, market growth more broadly. Um, and it's estimated that by really helping to move people along this chain, which gets more and more of the people who are formally outside of the fi formal financial sy uh, system into the financial f system, this could be as much as a $145 billion worth of boost um, to formal economy. So a huge opportunity by really looking at how do we get those who were formally excluded um, more included into the formal system benefits for economies as well as clearly done in a way that benefits the uh, individuals. Another way that we're working um, is by really looking at tapping into multinational companies who have a real opportunity and, and a real vested interest in some of the very same populations that we work with and who we have an interest in, in boosting their economic um, um, growth. So this looks at uh, partnerships uh, with 
with a couple of companies that we have had longstanding relationship with, Cargill and, and Mondelez, both involved in um, cocoa growing and, um, and, and in areas uh, where we're working, there's a huge mi- mismatch. Uh, real increase in the demand for, for cocoa, but not a matched supply. And a lot of the reason for that is the very people who are in countries like Ghana and, and Ivory Coast, smallholder farmers who don't have the, who, whose capacities aren't being invested in, therefore their ability to keep up the supply with the demand is unmatched. So we've worked with companies like Cargill, Mondelez, to make sure that all along this value chain, inputs, uh, attention to small-scale farming, looking at increasing the capacity for processing, aggregation, um, manufacturing, that all along this line and along this chain, that people who start at the very beginning, smallholder farmers, that we're helping those companies match building their capacity with helping to meet global demand and helping to, in, to incorporate the poor into some of these global supply chains, thereby helping them to have steady incomes, also helping to improve uh, in a sustainable way global supply chains, creating a win-win situation that um, we think has real value, uh, both in terms of helping to improve uh, businesses, but doing it in a way that is sustainable and doing it in a way that brings real value to those to those communities and without an organization like a care that has op- that, that understands communities have been working with these communities and know how to make sure that we 're looking at outcomes that include social value creation at the same time as wealth creation, um, that kind of win win situation doesn 't exist. A uh, third category that I mentioned is our work in social enterprises. And this is, um, an, and, and you mentioned some of these issues of uh, the work that's being done in building social businesses. And, and our role is to really serve as a bridge between the, the gap, the, the gap between, to bridge the gap between supply and demand. At the bottom here, you have both people who are either micro entrepreneurs or micro uh, or, or consumers. And at the top, you have uh, the private sector that has uh, supplies and goods that consumers need um, and, or, or uh, micro-entrepreneurs who, have, who are doing work but don't have the inputs. An organization like CARE serves as a gateway between goods and services and making sure that consumers at the bottom of the pyramid have access to quality products and services and at the same time are able to connect micro-entrepreneurs, especially people like smallholder farmers, to the market so that they have a, um, a dependable supply at the same time making sure that we're working in a way that builds their their capacities um, to be able to um, uh, increase their productivity there and be linked to uh, formal economies give you an example of one of the kinds of social enterprises that we're involved in and this is this is one called Jita in, in Bangladesh and this actually started as a development program it was started with grant funding typical grant funding um, to start a project 
that looked at a rural distribution system in Bangladesh that targeted marginalized uh, women, particularly uh, in that area. In some ways, it's kind of like Avon ladies um, who were able to, that, that we were able to work with. It, um, it, the project started with uh, a few thousand and now has grown to to almost 5,000 marginalized women who sell del- products door-to-door. Um, they get those products from 150 hubs that serve as rural distributions that connect these women to producers. This is a project that has now become a social business where, in, where that we, as well as Danone, um, are investing in, in this um, uh, endeavor, along with Unilever and Bata, where these women have a basket of essential goods that they're able to distribute, go the last mile that gets consumer goods well beyond where they would have, and at the same time give women um, a, a consistent stream of income that generates revenue, that makes this a self-sustaining business that no longer relies on grant money. So this is a project that started as a grant, but now is a self-sustaining business that, again, is one of these win-win situations where products are, are finding new consumers at the same time um, that women are, are finding a um, dependable income stream. So those are just some of the types of examples that we're working in in microfinance, looking at um, inclusion of the poor in the value chain, and now moving on to um, work in social enterprises. So clearly, um, there are challenges. And I I, uh, list here some of the the, uh, pictures of things that have been in the news recently that I think just highlight the kinds of challenges that come when working um, with businesses that haven't always thought about what's the win-win proposition for poor and vulnerable populations. And so whether it's the Barclays account shut down um, that um, um, I know there's been much... um, um, news about here or the Bangladeshi uh, garment exports and the, and the crash of the Rana um, factory. We know that there are these, ish- these problems and these situations that clash uh, because there are broken systems and there are systems that haven't been developed to think about what are the needs of poor and vulnerable populations. We know that we need to look at systems of holding companies uh, accountable so that companies, particularly global companies that are working uh, across sectors, think about what is their responsibility to poor and vulnerable populations. To do that, it is critical that we have cross-collaboration um, with a variety of sectors. It's often, oftentimes um, people ask me, well, why are you still involved in, in companies that we know um, have a ways to go? Well, if we're not at the table and if we're not talking together um, and not looking at uh, these kind of cross-sector collaborations, it's impossible to hold each other accountable and it's impossible to make the kind of progress that needs to be made. I think there are beginnings of solutions, and there are many, many more um, businesses that are being that are in, engaged. But we know that it means that more need to be engaged, and more of these sorts of win-win situations need to be created. So, where do we go from here? Um, as I mentioned, I think a lot of this is about how do we partner and how do we co-create. 
we see ourselves as being in the business of trying to work at co-creating and finding these solutions um, in a collaborative fashion. It's going to take more investment, investment in people, investment in, in the building of capacities. But I think it's those kinds of investments that in the long run will have a, have a huge impact um, for really looking at creative solutions that give sustainable um, impact for development. And it means inclusion of poor people in the solution. It means including particularly women um, in poor countries in which we work who are receiving and making sure that they are receiving the benefits of investment, but that they're also there to help to shape the kinds of investments that need to be made to make a difference. Organizations like us want to make sure that we're at the table and believe that it's important that all of us are at the table if we're going to have the kind of long-term sustainable impact that it's going to take to create positive long-term social change. So let me just end with this. Uh, this is a quote by Ban Ki-moon, UN Secretary General, which I think very much reflects um, our sentiment about why this type of work is so important. If sustainable development is to become a reality, we need to unleash a wave of public-private partnerships on a much bigger scale. And I think that's you know, my bottom line message. I think that the work that we've done in this arena shows that it is possible to uh, create business um, positives at the same time as creating social value. Uh, but to do that, I think it's going to take creative solutions, sitting together and talking, and really looking at this as not a short-term fix, but something that's going to take time, but in the long run, I think, is how we're going to build uh, sustainable change and a better future. So those are just my brief comments, and I would love to... Um, see if we can enter into more of a dialogue. So thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much. I should just add that Melina has just flown across the Atlantic this morning, spent most of the day in, uh, in meetings, and therefore uh, shouldn't be put under too much stress, although... <laughs> She looks to me like a woman who's used to doing this and uh, has clearly been doing it very well for a long time. Uh, she, she suggested that I might raise some issues first, but I, I, I think I'd rather open things up uh, and possibly pick up some, some issues later. There are a lot of people here, and I'm sure a lot of you are uh, involved in these issues. Um, I'll take possibly uh, two or three questions um, at a time, if if that's okay, mm -hmm. uh, and then sure. move on from there. So there's one there. Um, okay. yeah. uh, hello, my name is Doha Saleh. I'm um, uh, an alumni from the Social de uh, the Policy Department. I work now at King Saud University in Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's really interesting what you've talked about uh, tonight. But I was wondering if we want to apply some of these ideas into more richer countries, like in Saudi Arabia. Um, how can we do that, or how can we relate that to a country like Saudi Arabia? Thank you. Hi. Uh, thanks a lot for that. It was brilliant. 
I've read in the news recently that there's kind of a growing trend of people selling their organs in developing countries to pay off multiple microfinance loans to NGOs, which is obviously a very disturbing trend. I was wondering what you thought kind of the moral implications were for NGOs and what potential solutions could be to stop that sort of thing happening in the future. Mm-hmm. Hi there, Helene. Thank you. Uh, my name's Jessica Perrin from the Thomson Reuters Foundation, and I was interested to ask um, the growing movement towards public-private partnerships, whether you are um, seeing that that is being supported by bilateral donors as well. Okay, would you like to... Yeah, I'll, I'll answer those and happy for um, some more. So, you know, application to rich countries. I, um, you know, at the end of the day, this is really about equitable growth. And I think, you know, one of the things that I would hope um, this kind of work would do is to not just look at this from the standpoint of, you know, poorest communities. I mean, that's, that's, our, that's our work and, and that's, that's what I'm involved with. But I think more broadly, it would be wonderful to see the world be able to have economic growth and not keep um, having the same sort of trends where as a country grows, it becomes more unequal. And, you know, um, a lot of data out about how um, growth in the, in the world, how we're becoming a more unequal world. And so, you know, I think the challenge as a country um, has overall greater macroeconomic growth is looking at how do you do that from the standpoint of a lens of equity. And I think some of the same things that I talked about could be applicable anywhere, including in my own country, which is, you know, how are you doing this in a way that brings civil society, government, and the private sector to the table? Um, and I think that's what's oftentimes been missing, is that there hasn't been that dialogue between all of the partners and the, the people who are most... Um, who are, who are most vulnerable in any society are often the ones who are most left out of the dialogue. And so I think whatever uh, the level of income within a country, it's the same principle. How do you bring all of the partners to the table and as you're thinking about economic growth, how do you make that the lens be inclusive economic growth and make sure that those who need to be included and at the, di at the table are there? And so I think those, those principles apply across the border, no matter where it is. And I think, you know, um, again, I think the issue of gender is a huge one because in most countries around the world, uh, women have not had equal access to economic empowerment. And I think that has been an, an impediment to most um, countries having the kind of equitable growth that it needs. And so, you know, I think the same principles apply and making sure that people are brought to, brought to the table. Um, selling organs, we don't, uh, you know, um, I didn't, first time I've heard that, but I think that, you know, what, what is true is that in, in some um, microfinance, particularly the ones that are focused on lending, um, there, ha it, there have been situations where because the, um, the need to repay is so vital, people get coerced into doing a whole range of things. And, you know, uh, it, there, 
has been a lot of evidence in, in some of the microfinance programs that you know, women oftentimes take out loans because they're oftentimes programs that, that are targeting women um, for, for loans, but it's really their husbands who are demanding that they take out the loans. And, and you know, there have been programs where they've seen rates of gender-based violence actually go up as a result of these micro um, lending programs because husbands are coercing their women, including using violence, to make sure that they pay those loans back. It's the same as selling the organs. So I think whatever um, the situation, whether it's selling organs, whether it, it is coercive um, repayment, we've got to make sure that any of these lending schemes or saving schemes are, are looking at how are we building the capacity of the people who are engaged in them so that they aren't put into co- coercive situations. I don't know about the selling of organs. Obviously, it's not something that um, we would condone or you know, I, I think anyone would condone, but I think the roots of it are really looking at are we putting people in, in uh, more vulnerable situations by not making sure that the person who is um, involved is actually being empowered through that um, as opposed to coerced. Um, Bilateral donors. Yeah, you know, I think more and more bilateral donors are seeing the value of this and are are investing um, and really looking at, again, this kind of tripartite partnerships between the private sector, civil society, and the public sector. Um, you know, in our in our own in my own country in in the United States, USAID, our our um, you know, public sector um, uh, development agency, is now doing a lot more in co-investing with private sectors, looking at private sector um, strategies for development, and I think it's going to become more and more. Um, part of what the public sector does for, for a couple of reasons. One, um, development aid is not going in the up direction. It's um, either flat or, in many cases, going down. So I think there's, there's just a practical need to look at ways in which public sector resources can be leveraged by um, you know, private, private capital. But I also think it's because people are realizing that you know, there is... There are probably two sustainable sources of, of income, taxes or you know, private capital. And if you can blend those, then you have a much better opportunity to have longer-lasting, sustain, sustainable um, um, results. So, Just looking up there, because people up there tend to get overlooked. So we'll start with you. Well, in fact, I've got three people up there. That, that'll be the next three. And I should be, I, I hate, I'm sorry, I, maybe I should stand up. I hate well, to be ignoring if you can, that side of the, yeah. No, you sure you don't want to come and just sit a bit further forward so that you can get to be seen? Yeah, keep, keep the mic. Okay, we've got three questions up there. Thank you very much for the really interesting presentation. Um, Julianne Neer from uh, working on climate finance with the Climate and Development Knowledge Network. And 
we can see a lot of kind of innovative projects evolving on how we engage the private sector in kind of funding more, pri um, more climate change projects. But one of the questions that we're dealing with is actually how to do this to scale, um, because a lot of the things are kind of a drop in the ocean. And so I was wondering, do you have an example of um, a project that you can think of where you're actually achieving a lot kind of bigger scale at the moment, and what your inputs would be kind of what's your recipe to achieving scale on engaging the private sector? Um, I don't know if you can think of one offhand scale. Um, I, well, you know, the, the ones that I mentioned, um, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, for instance, in, in the case of Cargill, we're working in, uh, we have, that's a program that has gone over um, ten year, five years, um, and, and now is, is being renewed. It's um, five different countries, um, tens of thousands, and I'm forgetting the exact numbers of people reached. And, you know, that's just, you know, one example. I think that what we're trying to do is to look at how do you pilot things, get a good, um, you know, model of a system that works, and then working to, to scale that and bring in other partners. Again, the, the example I gave of Cargill and Mondelez, they're now going to, they were in, in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, we were working separately. They're now actually planning on partnering with us together, which will allow us to take it to scale and also allow us to work uh, kind of more end-to-end -end than we could with just one company. So you know, I think there's a lot of examples of ways in which we're doing that. The, the Village Savings and Loan Program, which I mentioned, is, you know, is a project, that, a program that is reaching millions of people. It isn't one, and more and more we're, we're getting private sector dollars, particularly for, for some of the linkages into the formal system. So you know, I think we are trying to do more to bring scale, and then to also look at how can we work with others to replicate the um, projects that, that uh, we uh, are working with. Person up there. Hi, um, my name is Matt. Um, thanks for the presentation. Um, my question was really just um, around some of the, the partnerships that you have. So you spoke about some of the very specific partnerships that you have. So, for example, financial institutions, Cargill, Mondelez. Are there challenges that you face in delivering these big campaigns that you think the private sector might be able to help with more generally? So your kind of implementation, delivery of, of, of these things. Are there, are there thing, problems that you've had that some other support would have been useful in kind of solving those challenges? Yeah, well, um, one of the slides that I showed earlier when I talked about kind of the multi-asset way in which we try to work, you know, I, I gave examples and I could, you know, give others of ways in which we're working, particularly um, in this whole area of inclusion of the poor in the, in the value chain. But I think there are lots of other ways in which working with companies can be of great value. So advocacy. Um, as an example, you know, I, I mentioned the um, garment workers and the, some of the challenges that have been faced, and the, the most public one was the recent you know, um, factory fires and collapse in Bangladesh. But those same, some of the partners that we're working with in the garment industry are now, that have helped us to work 
in ways that have really strengthened um, skills within the workforce, helped to take people who didn't have much capacity and really um, scaling up their skills so that they can work through up the management chain, helping to educate communities that they work in. They're actually helping now to look at, okay, how do they take best practices and use that in ways that actually shift the way work um, um, companies engage with communities. The same example um, with some of our work uh, with Cargill, again, and I use them because we've worked with them over a long period of time. A lot of, a lot of the work that they're doing now, they're really looking at how do, can they become industry leaders and help to shape the way people do things. So I think the whole issue of advocacy and policy change, as we look at ways in which um, Industry changes the way it does business. It can, I think, the, that can also be used as a way to help shift the way that whole industry um, does its work. Other ways of engagement, uh, you know, I, I mentioned um, consumer and employee engagement. We're involved with a project with um, General Mills called Join My Village, which is a, an employee engagement activity where. General Mills unlocks, and, and now um, Merck, will unlock resources to go into supporting programs that we're operating in the field in Malawi and India. And, you know, while it's the, the resources that are being um, contributed are, you know, hugely successful and, and hugely useful for the programs, what it also does is helps... Um, engage employees more broadly with these issues. It's a way of creating knowledge. It's a way of creating global citizens. But it's also a way of, of improving employee morale, if you will, because people will say, you know, part of why I feel proud about country, uh, company X, Y, and Z is because they do this kind of work. And I feel really good about going to work every day for a company that I know, you know, is also helping to make a difference in the world. Uh, another way that we're working with um, companies is, is um, co-branding and, and cause marketing. How do we pull brands together, our brand, their, you know, uh, well-known brands, in a way that enhances both of us uh, better understanding, better knowledge of the work we do, but it's also a way that, that helps to boost brands. And I, I guess finally, um, we get a lot of technical support, managerial support, uh, in the case of um, some of the agriculture companies that we work with, a lot of work uh, um, in actually helping to improve smallholder farmers' agricultural um, productivity. So there's a lot of ways in which employee engagement helps to bring technical skills as well as resources. So, you know, I think there's a lot of ways in which uh, the private sector can be hugely useful beyond just giving money or, you know, creating a particular kind of project. Somebody else up there? Hi, I'm Philippa uh, from the Department of uh, Rural Affairs and Environment for the UK government. I'm just curious about when you mentioned bringing partners to the table, how could the relation with the government be improved or what could be done to improve that relation? Yeah, I think, um, you know, part of it is how do we create a better dialogue and a, you know, a better understanding 
of how we mutually benefit each other. And some of it is just even creating a common language. I um, often laugh about a, a meeting I had with one of our financial services providers and he, you know somebody who really got this and understood this kind of work and was very excited about financial inclusion and bringing the poor into the financial system. But he said, you know, when I talk to my colleagues about financial inclusion, their eyes glaze over. But when I talk to them about future consumers, they get it. And so some of it is just, you know, how, do we, how are we talking to each other so that we understand where that sweet spot is? Where are those win-win situations? You know, and I think that there are more of them than we oftentimes think exist. That said, you know, there are times when we're coming from very, very different um, sides of, of the argument. And for, for businesses, and increasingly, you know, businesses that are pressured to have short-term outcomes, it is very hard sometimes to get businesses to think about longer-term goals that um, understanding that if your future markets are in the you know, countries that are emerging economies, that it is important to also make sure that in those same companies you're creating goodwill, you're creating social value, but that's a long-term endeavor. The companies that we've had the most successes with are companies who are willing to take the long-term view and understand that, it, that they can't be bound by short-term um, you know, earnings only if, if they're going to ultimately stay in business for the long-term future. But it is having that kind of dialogue to get, you know, to, get to that. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, again, a lot of it is just how do, you, how do you bring people to the table, start talking the same language, and figure out how they get to those win-win situations. You know, and we've done it in a variety of, of ways, I think, looking at... Um, one of our partners, Syngenta, that we're, we're starting a relationship with, really looking at, you know, how can we use some of our um, know-how and some of the experience that, that we've been involved in um, to help them as they think about ways in which they want to be involved more in this kind of um, shared value creation. And so, you know, I think we also feel we have a lot to offer in terms of almost in a consulting way being able to provide people ways in which they can think about this a little bit differently. So I think it's I think a lot of businesses need to realize that poor people make very bad consumers of their products. So creating a bit of wealth is gonna help them in both sides of Yeah, well that's the point. I mean, you know, it, if ultimately um, economies will continue to grow if you have consumers. You make consumers by having people who have um, uh, income and 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 you know have uh, have disposable income and you know create. But I think it it has to be done in a way that recognizes that this is not um, done in a way that doesn't also make sure we're giving assets to individuals helping build communities capacity because it's not just about creating future markets it's also about creating social value because that was one of the thoughts that came to my mind when you were talking about the bottom of the pyramid activities and the ability of big corporations to, to sell their products outside the normal range because 
the interesting question is to what extent does that actually support and create local incomes as opposed to simply draw resources out of those areas? And is there a sort of symbiotic relationship between the ability of large companies to sell their products more effectively in local markets without undermining the capacity of those people to earn the incomes that they need to earn to have the money to buy them with? Yeah, well, and that's why I think organizations like ours are, are essential because, you know, we've had situations where companies have tried to go in and do this on their own. And, and you know, oftentimes, most times, they haven't been successful because you're not also crea- you're not creating social capital at the same time. And without also creating the social capital, looking at how are we making sure that we're we're increasing people's capacity. How how are we making sure that we're thinking about social outcomes at the same time? So that you know, um, if we're making sure that women are able to learn about health and nutrition at the same time as they're learning management skills, so that they're also you know that their children are going to be better fed, more likely to have. Um, access to education, et cetera. So, you know, we're looking at this in a holistic way that isn't just looking at are we creating future consumer markets, um, but are we also creating social value at the same time? Because if they're not done together, at the, at the end of the day, um, we really haven't done much but continue to create more unequal societies, and that's not the goal of it. Yeah, and you know we're we're doing some work in that area, and I think where we're where we're doing more is through looking at um, social enterprises and really looking at can we get more attract more investment capital to some of these small um, businesses. You know, there's clearly um, you know I think in the last couple of years it's estimated there's somewhere in the range of four billion dollars of investment capital available but not really linked to some of these um, some of the kinds of enterprises that we work with and so that's part of what we're trying to do is to look at how can you incubate um, and small businesses develop sustainable business plans and then be able to um, bring to it the the investment capital that does exist but I think it is looking it does take an organization, you know, like Care and others that, that can actually incubate these. And it's kind of what I was giving the example of the JITA um, program in, in Bangladesh, which started really as a grant-funded program that we incubated, developed a business model. In fact, um, Syed School of um, Business in Oxford did a study on the whole development of it, how the business plan was developed, 
but also how it, uh, what were the social mission that, that were, that were um, the social goals that were part of it, and how were we able to optimize social value at the same time as, as looking at a sustainable business model. So we're really trying to do more of that, create these small businesses, incubate them, develop business plans that, that are sustainable, and then attract the capital and, match, and do that kind of match. And I invite my colleague, who's who's sitting here, who's really the expert, to say anything if she thinks I'm, you know, totally screwing up any of these answers. You can answer this one, Christine. Um, hi, it's Louise from Accenture Development Partnerships. We see many NGOs struggle um, to balance the advocacy relationship mm. with big companies, with also looking to engage in long-term strategic partnerships with the company's core business. Do you think NGOs can do both effectively with the same company? And if so, what strategies do they need to employ to kind of manage that relationship? Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think um, the, bi- the biggest strategy is trust. Uh, and, you know, I think that if you develop a, a trusting relationship that is really built on, you know, uh, we entered into this partnership because we believe in you, and we believe in, you know, we believe in you just like parents believe in their children. Where if you, you know, um, need to, uh, if you kind of go off the rails, you, you know, you, you have the discussion you need to. But I mean, you know, we've been in situations where, in fact, companies that we've worked with, we've had some difficult situations. But I think because it's a partnership. And we feel like we can have open and honest dialogue around it. We can agree to disagree and also be very clear. You know, we are going to go out on uh, a position that we know you don't um, necessarily support. But we feel in, you know, in in, um, consistent with our mission, this is the policy that we go out with. But I think it really does, um, it is built on, you know, a, a partnership of trust and I, I wouldn't say it is simple, but I don't think that it's impossible either. And I, you know, and and, and the other thing, uh, you know, again, I think if you if you don't if you're not willing to have that that uh, dialogue and be at the table together, then you'll never get to a point where we're starting to see each other's sides in a way that I think leads both of us to a better result. Sorry, there's a debate about who should be speaking oh. next. It's the, uh, the the black man up there. He's first in this. The man in the front row. Okay, okay, we'll have the two. First, first you at the back, and then my friend in the front. Okay, thank you. Um, I'd like to um, ask, a, in a sense, a follow-up question about the um, one related to scale, um, which has to do with exit. Um, has to do with with exit. Uh, so you um, start a program at small scale, ramp it up, and so on and so forth. Um, it seems to me that um, perhaps a goal should be to withdraw eventually uh, in a way that leaves the local people able to take over the program and run it successfully without your help, without the help of some of your international partners and so forth. Um, is that a goal? Uh, can you give us an example or two of um, how you've been able to do it, what are some of the challenges associated with that, and how did you um, overcome them? Yeah, part of the reason why 
I'm very hopeful about some of this work is that I think it allows you to do that more effectively than when you're working with just you know grant or aid funding. I think one of the biggest challenges in development work is the fact that you know if you're dependent on grants, then the ability to leave and walk away and know that the work is going to be continued is, is far less. I think when you're looking at things that actually are either linked into um, sustainable value chains, are creating businesses that have a business model that are sustainable, that, that actually generate income, you know, I think you then have things that you can walk away from once they are up and running and um, effectively integrated into value chains or effectively creating um, revenue. So I think these models allow you to actually look at the possibility um, in much shorter times of walking away and leaving something that's sustainable. Yes, uh, thank you. And thank I, you. you know, I guess the other the other part of that is. You know, again, it's why the focus on making sure that we're developing people's capacity at the same time, because ultimately that's what's going to make sure that it is sustainable if people themselves, if communities are engaged, if capacity is being developed, and if you're actually linking people to something that is a renewable, sustainable source of revenue. Yes, uh, thank you for the presentation. My name is Mukasa. And I'm from Uganda. And I think the, I just want to thank you for the village saving and loans associations because I think they have done a spectacular job. And my question is in that specific regard, considering that they are, they are women focused groups. And as you rightly mentioned, this causes some family conflict at, uh, at some time as the men attempt to get some resources from these groups. But what's your opinion on uh, having a women-led versus a family-focused uh, approach to the village saving and loans associations? Yeah, well, you know, we've targeted women um, primarily in probably 75, 80 percent of our village savings and loans are focused on women, but there, that means that there's, you know, another uh, you know, 20 percent or so that um, are that have men who are part of it. Um, we've obviously targeted women because women have been the most um, excluded and and marginalized economically, and it's a way of not only building economic empowerment, but it's also, you know, the, these are groups that come together that develop women's um, uh, efficacy more broadly. So, you know, help develop skills. Um, help to develop women's sense of self-confidence, help women start businesses. But we also include men in, in, in the process. And a lot of the work that we do that, that um, is aimed at empowering women and giving women equal access to income, to education, et cetera, also means that we have to make sure that men are part of the equation too. Because otherwise, what you do is to uh, change a woman's sense of self, but then you haven't also changed how men view her, how her male counterpart may view her. So we really believe that engaging men is a, is a huge part of it, and if you know, and also making sure that we're looking at how does this help to improve families more broadly. And you know, a lot of research has shown that if women 
earn income, they're more likely to use that in ways that support family growth and family capacity, getting children, to, making sure children um, you know, get to school, making sure that there's uh, adequate nutrition, et cetera. But a big part of it is making sure that men are also learning new skills as women learn new skills so that it's, you know, it's part of developing a couple's relationship to each other, not just developing a woman. But from a private sector perspective, I think we are still struggling with the question of trust, mm-hmm. which you said is the, you know, is the cornerstone of any of these partnerships. And there's two questions which rise for me. Is One is, obviously, what do you think companies can do more to gain that trust? Because we do need more of these partnerships to enable both the commercial as well as the social benefits that accrue from, from some of these. But also, where do you see the trend of NGOs in the sector that care is to be more open to some of these things, because I think it works both ways. We can only walk so far, and, and other people need to walk their way as well. And we're not seeing that as widespread as, as would be needed to have a scale and a replicable model of partnership. And similarly, with governments as well, we are seeing a lot of resistance still. I mean, there are a few that stand out, but overall, there's still quite a bit of resistance in this kind of engagement. So what would you tell businesses, but what would you also tell your own counterparts in the NGO sector? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I guess there is no magic to building trust, um, you know, between companies and NGOs any more than between two individuals. You know, I think it's, it's the same sort of things that you do when you're trying to build trust in a relationship. You listen, um, you're willing to be open, you're willing to change and suspend beliefs and um, see things from other people's perspectives. So, I, you know, I think it's some of those same sort of sort of ingredients. And, you know, again, similar to I said to what I said about um, one of the previous questions. Some of it is that I think businesses are too too um, motivated by short term goals. And I think to the extent that businesses can take a much longer view. It does free businesses to think differently about the way they engage in business. And, you know, I think it takes um, um, shifting power relationships. Again, and it kind of to the same question you, you asked about women and, and men and uh, village savings and loans. You know, a lot of this is all about power dynamics. And, you know, if you're talking about um, big businesses versus... Um, you know, NGOs or communities, businesses often have the upper hand because, you know, they've got the money, they've got, you know, the perceived power in society. So I think it is um, how, do, how does a partner that is perceived as more powerful um, be willing to give some of that up, um, think differently, and... Um, you know, and listen. So, I mean, I think that's the, the, the start of it. And I think that, that more NGOs will be more likely to work with businesses as they see those dynamics shifting. And so, you know, we and, you know, there are others that have been willing to, because we've had relationships that have gone well, have been, been willing to, you know, put our toe in and then put another toe in and 
you know, put a foot in. And you know, But it's by developing this kind of trust. And I think as more people see that this is not just about selling your brand, this is not just um, because you want new markets, but you're not willing to really think about what are the needs of the peoples in those markets, then I think other um, NGOs will follow because who wouldn't? want to engage if they saw that there was a real opportunity to more rapidly reach their goal and to do it in a more sustainable way. But, you know, I think there's enough examples of systems that have been, that are broken and promises that have not been kept that give people pause. So I think it's partly the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's you know I think that's that's fair. I mean, even within my own organization, we have struggles all the time about who we partner with. Um, should you know, um, big issue right now. We're thinking about doing some work with the extractive industry. You know, that was at one point in time in our absolute no list. On the other hand, extractive industries are having a bigger impact on many of the populations that, that we work with than almost any other industry other than maybe, you know, agriculture obviously has a huge impact. Um, but, you know, extractive industries, big, huge, but, you know, there's real risk there. So, you know, I think there's real reason for skepticism. There's real reason for worrying about reputational risk. But I just, you know, I really do believe if we don't, if we stand back and don't engage, then we'll have the same sort of thing happening, which is companies doing things that are not in the interest of poor people. And if we want to make a difference in that, then I think we have to engage. Um, stemming from what you were just talking about, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights actually cover a lot of uh, of this discussion. And I was wondering to what extent uh, these principles factor into your discussions with corporations about sustainable private sector development. They do, along with a lot of other things. You know, we have our own um, kind of due diligence list that inc include many of the same sort of principles. So before we engage in a company, we have, you know, do a due diligence and, it, you know, are the transparency issues and sustainability and, you know, um, all of those. But, um, yeah, so very much in, in, in part of, forms part of our thinking about who we will partner with and, you know, how, you know, what kind of dialogue we have. Somebody over here. Microphone. Thank you. So I guess the, the center of care is actually the people who are receiving this help in being autonomous. How, how do you make sure that uh, they have a voice in the process? Yeah, uh, very good, very good point. So how do we make sure that we include people in the process. And, uh, you know, just to, I guess, 
um, simplistically, that's our whole reason for being, and it's you know part of what we see as our role. You know, care has been in most of the communities that we work with for many, many years, you know, oftentimes decades. Um, there are countries that we've been in for five and six decades. And, you know, we've done that by working with communities, building the trust, knowing how to, to, to convene communities in a way that helps to foster dialogue. So that's just core to what we do, is to make sure that we're bringing communities into the dialogue any time that we... Um, you know, develop it. And again, using an example from the partnership in, in, in Cargill, you know, part of what um, we evolved in that work was how to develop this kind of um, two, actually three-way dialogue that really shifted their thinking about how do you work with communities in true partnership. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's been a sustained part of the way that we work and looking at you know, a variety of different tools that we've developed that, that allow for uh, both community engagement, but also looking at accountability and how do, how do we help communities hold companies accountable in ways that allow them to have um, a much different co- kind of outcome. And I don't know if you want to say anything. I'll just keep asking. Yeah, right. A couple of other examples of how we involve communities. Christine, introduce yourself. I'm, I'm Christine. I, I head up the private sector work we do in care. So a couple of other examples of how we involve communities. One example is the work that we've been doing with Barclays um, in, in creating new, pro- new financial products and mm-hmm. services. Yeah. That means that, that the product development team from Barclays is spending time with the village savings and loan groups to really truly understand what, what type of products they, they need. So that once the products are being developed. I mean, in the same way that I guess a company would do it with any other consumer-focused group to really figure out that the types of products and services that are being developed are being done like that. Another example is is when we work, for example, with with, um, in value chain development with with the likes of Mondelez to make sure that the holistic development goals that we are setting with communities is being set by communities, not by care and not by the company. It means that every single community, and we work in many hundreds of communities in Ghana and Ivory Coast, uh, set their own community action plan from which care and Mondelez respond. So, so it, it's looking at, at, at really drawing people in and thinking about where it is they want to be in the longer term. Yes, hi. Um, Helena, you've talked a lot about companies being um, accountable to communities, which I absolutely believe in. And, you know, I think to a certain extent, it's, we're, we're talking about enlightened companies, we're talking about enlightened business leaders, but what we haven't spoken about is the extent to which companies are accountable to their stakeholders. Um, to what extent do NGOs like CARE have a dual responsibility to actually be educating consumers and driving the advocacy agenda so that companies feel that there's a real drive and a pressure from their shareholders to deliver these kind of partnerships and these kind of results rather than just profits? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a good point. I think we should. I think we probably don't do enough of going kind of directly to consumers. Um, in We do a lot of work in advocacy broadly, but I don't think we do as much focused on consumers to pressure companies in that way. But it's, it, it is another role. 
What, what's your take on Milton Friedman's comment that the only social responsibility a company had was to its shareholders? Oh, well, I, I guess it depends on what that means. Um, you know, ultimately, I think a, comp- a company's responsibility um, is to, to, to create wealth and to be and to perpetuate its existence, which means I think long-term thinking. And again, that that's where I think um, the focus, this obsession about quarterly earnings and things that force companies into short-term thinking, I don't think is in the best interest of shareholders either. Uh, I think in the lo- you know thinking much more long-term in the end is going to be better for shareholders. And also opens the opportunity to do business in different ways. So, and I, you know, and I think you you do have to think about, um, you know, what who are all of your shareholders, and thinking about that much more broadly too. And whether the shareholders are going to have customers unless you actually do something. So. Yeah. Um, are you so good to go? There seems to be plenty of demands. Yes, over there. Sleep. It's overrated. <laughs> <laughs> World, a gold. Extractives. Let's see. And, you know, um, we haven't done a lot of working with companies in conflict areas just by almost because the instability of it means that that's not a, a, a place and a, an environment where it would be easy to develop a stable partnership. I mean, we do a lot of work in conflict areas, but not as much in this particular area for that, you know, for that reason. So I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. Um, I don't know if you, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously the issue of conflict, diamonds, minerals, and, and all is, is somewhat of a different situation. And, you know, it's one where, from an advocacy perspective, we've tried to do some work, but not from a direct, you know, involvement with business at that time. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, it just isn't an area where we've had a lot of experience. Yeah. Hi, thank you. Oh, is on? Yeah. Thank you for your talk. Um, my name is Mary Johnston Louie. I'm a researcher at the University of Oxford, and um, I, along with several of my colleagues, are the co authors on the oh, case nice. about the GITA yeah, program. Right. And we have followed with great interest the work that Christine and her team have done, um, particularly in Bangladesh. And so mm-hmm. I'm pleased to see you mention that. Um, 
One thing, as I looked at that program, really for almost the past five years, that really sticks out is sort of the enabling conditions within care that allowed that program to become a success in Bangladesh. One that I think about is the fact that it was um, a couple of very innovative individuals within care whose backgrounds were actually largely private sector themselves, Mm -hmm. who kind of brought their own Mm -hmm. view and their own skills into make that a success. And the second one was sort of the enabling conditions around around donors and around actually having the ability to take risks in that context. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit about the changes that have gone on within care as you've as you thought about the people you would like in your organization and the types of relationships you would need with donors in order to allow these kinds of proposals to move forward? Yeah, well, um, it's a good point. I, you know, I, I wish I could say that I think we have changed as much as I would like um, for us to change uh, in that regard. In, in terms of mixing skills, I think it's something that we're doing a lot more and you know, compared to, say, 10 years ago, I wasn't there 10 years ago, but, it, you know, if I were to look at what the workforce was like then, very much typical development workers. Not that there's anything wrong with typical development workers, you know, but I think that if you're thinking about doing development differently, it does take having a range of, of different sorts of skills. And I think we've moved a long way in that regard, and having people who come from the private sector who have had different experiences, and I think it's going to be necessary if we're going to. And, I, you know, it's really encouraging when I look at a lot of the young, um, new leaders that we have in our country offices, particularly, um, there, a lot of them are people who come with strong business backgrounds. So it is changing. And I think the people thinking about different ways of doing business. And I, you know, when I look at, and I wish I had, um, you know, I wish we had enough jobs to give, because I, I get asked all the time by people who are in the private sector who say, you know, I, this is exactly what I would love to do, um, you know, and even offer to do it for free and do it. You know, but so I think there's a real hunger out there um, for doing that. I also think, and it goes back to your question, that development agencies are much more encouraging of taking these kinds of risks as our foundations. Um, you know, there are a lot more foundations now who are looking at doing their grant making differently, investing in, um, you know, doing more impact investing, doing more work that really catalyzes these kinds of partnerships, but also, you know, doing it in ways that look at investments versus only giving out grants. So I think it's, a, you know, again, it's a, one of these things that I think is very encouraging. But it's a good point. Um, I, I, I think, and it kind of goes to the point Kavita was making as well, is looking at how do we have an enabling environment within organizations that look at doing this um, differently. So I'm very appreciative to my colleagues who actually know something about this. <laughs> yeah, right over there. Hi, Dr. Gill. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Eve Gutterman. I'm a Barnard graduate and, oh, uh, <laughs> and oh. a master's student here at the LSE. Um, my question is more of a cultural one. In your efforts to empower girls and women in, in countries that don't necessarily uh, line up with the Western world, have you encountered any uh, difficulties with religious leaders, traditional leaders, um, regarding kind of mainstreaming women's participation in economic activity, and how do you overcome some of those things? Great. 
I was I was yelling because she went to the same college that I went to um, many years later. But um, uh, anyway, it's nice to have a Barnard grad. Um, so yeah, obviously this issue of women's empowerment is interpreted differently and appreciated differently from different cultures. Uh, but you know, again, I think some of it is how do you how do you work with people where they are and then look at how do you bring them along. And I think uh, back to the same um, theme of trust, some of it is how do you build trust within communities so that you can work on difficult solutions, uh, difficult um, and challenging issues and find um, uh, solutions that are relevant and applicable to those environments. So, you know, we're not going into a country and saying, here's how you empower women, we're working with countries to first of all um, have a dialogue around this as an issue so that communities are recognizing themselves that this is an issue and keeping women behind isn't helpful. And then looking at bringing, you know, bringing all the stakeholders in, religious leaders, um, you know, civic leaders, government leaders together to come up with solutions. And, you know, so I think that's, that's the, you know, the way that we've been able to do that in very, very challenging environments. I often give this example of our work in girls' education in Afghanistan. And, you know, we worked in Afghanistan almost continuously um, other than a very short period during um, Soviet occupation. And even during the Taliban years, in many places, we were able to continue providing girls' education, working with communities. And you know, one kind of ingenious sort of solution was you know, people, including men in the community, said, okay, we know that it's illegal to, to uh, educate girls, but let's call these sewing schools. It's not illegal to teach girls how to sew. Those were still schools. They were still teaching reading and writing and arithmetic. But it was a community solution. They said, you know, we still, we now understand the value of teaching our girls, but we're not going to get our, you know, we're not going to put ourselves out there to um, put our communities at risk. So let's figure out a way of continuing to do it, but do it in a way that doesn't call attention um, in a way that, that is harmful. Uh, you know, uh, another example is a project in, in Ethiopia, uh, around decreasing the practice of female genital cutting. And the way we were able to actually get uh, communities to look at abolishing that tradition in some very, very traditional communities was by actually having men um, see what was going on with their daughters. And once they realized, because these were secret practices, they didn't know what was happening, and a brave, courageous woman said, well, what I'm going to do is to have men actually understand what's going on with their, with their daughters. And once they did, they said, you know, this isn't something that, you know, we feel is productive. And they became the ones who were champions for decreasing, uh, you know, to, to basically outlawing it in, in their communities. So I think there are ways by working with communities and basically helping communities hold up a mirror to understand why issues like this are so important. Um, you can find solutions that uh, make a difference, even in the most very sensitive issues 
um, like that. That's another question. Shall I go? Thank you. I'd just like to pick up on your... um, My name's Liz Lyle from Oxfam. I'd just like to pick up on your previous point on um, investment versus development aid and to really get your thoughts on to what extent extent do you see that truly getting to the bottom of the the pyramid, to the poorest of the poor? And I'm asking this in light of the president of the World Bank... um, recently announcing the ambitious goal by 2030 of alleviating poverty principally through private sector investment and the creation of jobs. Just not convinced it's going to get right to the bottom. I'd just be great to get your thoughts. Yeah, it's a good point. And, you know, I, I, uh, like anything, I think that part of the answer to that is that it will happen if we make it so. Um, I think it is totally possible to have private sector be done in, in a way, and that's, you know, that private sector can't, there's no broad brush, but I think that there are ways of, of using private sector solutions that can, in fact, um, be targeted to the, the um, base of the pyramid and done in a way that actually helps to lift um, more people out of poverty. But it, it's not going to just happen. Um, it, you know, for all the reasons that people have brought up, it's not going to just happen. So I think it's going to take you know, the CARES and the Oxfams and others of the world, you know, making sure that, in fact, we're forming those kinds of partnerships that look at directing things in a way that have the greatest impact on, you know, poorest communities. I think, but, you know, I think that there is increasingly an incentive to do that. Um, There are billions of dollars, if you will, being wasted that are, that are, that are locked out of economic being part of the economic engine. That's in everybody's interest to have that unlocked and unleashed in ways that can become uh, productive capital and, you know, create wealth, um, you know, because as you started out to say, you know, there is some link after all with poverty alleviation and job creation and and wealth creation. So, you know, I think we've got to do better about making those links and making the arguments by having examples that actually prove that you can do both. And the more we have those examples, I think the more, in fact, you know, we can get more people behind it. Did, did you want to? Yeah. yeah, I guess it's kind of, um, thank you again for coming today. It's been a wonderful experience so far. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> so tied. It's, well, it's, let's <laughs> blow it. <laughs> I always wonder when somebody says so far, and now I'm going to ask the question that is going to knock you <laughs> yeah. off your socks and change it. All right. Well, I guess it's a kind of an idealistic um, situation, but in the event that we are able to create and unlock, uh, unleash this wave of uh, private and public partnerships that foster growth, what do you see as the role for NGOs in the civil sector? What can they bring to the table? Because you've talked about bringing all the partners, uh, public, private, and uh, the civic players to the table and conversing. If there is a relationship between private and public, um, that fosters growth. What do what does the civil? What do the NGOs bring to the table at that point? At which point? Sorry. So, sorry. At the point where um, the private and public partnerships are able to function in, in their own entity. Well, you know, I, same as the question somebody else asked. At some point, you know, maybe we won't be necessary. But I think in the beginning stages when you have um, organizations, entities, businesses that don't have natural relationships 
with the communities that wouldn't know how to really work with communities, particularly communities that are at the base of the pyramid, and wouldn't have as its natural instinct to think about how you actually create social value and create social, um, increase social capital and all the things that we do um, to, to kind of be a broker, if you will, for building those partnerships. I think in the beginning it's absolutely crucial. Hopefully as time goes on, um, that will become natural and those partnerships will be sustaining beyond you know, the beginning. But you know, I think at the beginning it's very um, clear that, that the role of civil society is critical for making that sort of partnership work. You know, back to the other question, though. You know, I think the other issue in this is, you know, this work is great, but I think we also have to remember government plays an important role. And, you know, I think governments have an important role for creating a broader enabling, enabling environment. You know, the policy frameworks, um, all the things that are important for investment in co countries, the stability that, and that gets to the question about, you know, companies in... Um, in conflict areas, you know, I think one of the uh, biggest uh, detractors from some of these things and, develop, and, and development generally is poor governance, poor policy frameworks, poor p business um, frameworks. And so those things are going to be necessary as well. So I, you know, I, I, simple-minded to think that it's just, you know, a company walks in with an NGO and, and works in the community. If you don't have some of those enabling in policy environments, it's also very hard to have some of this work continue and be as productive as, um, you know, ultimately it should be. If, if I could just add... And there's another there. question. Um, it, it's, it seems to me that the critical issue that confronts small business development is what I would call startup costs. What we actually have here are people who've been systematically excluded from the knowledge, the skills, access to value chains and all of those things that make it possible to get their infant industry to the point where it's capable of actually making a profit and operating effectively. The, the mechanisms that exclude poor people from global markets are just immense. The number of things that poor people can actually produce, poor people with limited skills, limited ca capital, can actually produce competitively and sell globally are extremely poor, extremely small. <coughs> Actual companies can't necessarily afford to invest upfront in these things because basically companies have to make money and survive. Which is why it seems to me that having an NGO that brings in resources from outside to cover these startup costs and enable these people to get to the market, that's, that's the critical role seems to me that's being played and of course the strategy of setting them up, making them viable and then exiting and going and doing it somewhere else is clearly what 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 is yeah. needed. Yeah, no, and I think it's it's uh, the capacities that we bring, but I think it's also, you know, blending that with public sector resources. Again, some of the work that we've done started as grant funding, you know, either public sector or private philanthropy that allowed some of the, to take some of that risk and to be able to incubate and build. You know, I think the other part of your, um, your statement is also that I think we in northern c countries also have to look at what are the policies 
that our governments take that also inhibit, whether it's our trade policies or other things that make it very, very difficult for poor people to to compete in global markets. So I think we've got to think about, you know, uh, again, to some of the points around advocacy, what are we doing to make sure that policies in our own country favor um, you know, economic development of the poor and that we're not doing things that only further disadvantage people, um, you know. Like, like agricultural protectionism in our own markets. Right. Which is, which is enormous. That last question. Uh, yeah. Thank you for That's a good point. Um, you know, a few things. You know, first of all, while we are an international um, NGO and our roots are, you know, in started in the U.S. and now we have a global confederation that includes um, lots of members, many of them who come from the north, are the offices that we run in countries are 99% people from those countries. Um, leadership in many of the countries that we work um, are, you know, the heads of the country operations are from those countries. Uh, so, you know, increasingly, and that wouldn't have been the case uh, 10, 15 years ago. But it's, you know, we really feel like we have to be very much part of the communities in which we work, that part of our building capacity is through our own organization as well. Um, and more and, and more and more, the uh, places where we work, care takes on a very local or national um, identity. And more of our um, places that we work are actually becoming independent national entities that are part of the care confederation, but are really, you know, have national boards and people who have ownership. But we're also working in very different ways. So, you know, 10, 20 years ago, uh, when we talked about what CARE does, it would have been people who were on CARE's payroll, if you will, doing those programs. Now, more and more, we might have two or three, four staff working to help develop capacity of local um, partners, and they may be hundreds of people who are actually doing the work, and there may be two or three people who are, you know, who are care employees. So more and more, our work 
is how do we step back and and do what we can do as an international organization, which is to share knowledge across the confederation, so that, you know, across the countries that we work in, um, so that people can be both local but also have you know global understanding. But how do we really take much more of a back um, a back seat? and working much more through building local capacity and local organizations. Because I think in the long run, that's how those kind, that kind of, again, you know, I think if, if I think of any word that's come up more and more, it's about trust. And a lot of this is really about how do you build trust. And, and you know, the only way that I know to build trust is to have an honest dialogue with, uh, with, with the people who, who you're hoping to make a difference in their lives. And if you don't include them, you'll never develop that trust. Well, thank you very much for that. This has been one of those evenings that I think uh, we at the LSE can, are very sort of proud to be able to, to put on and, and host. Um, I'd just like to ask one question. Can you tell me how many people here are actually not LSE students? Well, wow, well. wow, wow. <laughs> Well, that's very interesting. It's good to see that we have such such, <laughs> such a draw, <laughs> and indeed that, that you have this, this powerful, powerful attract, capacity to attract. Well, I, I don't think I have to say any more than that. I think this has been an absolutely compelling and, and important evening. Uh, I'm simply to thank you again for coming to us and giving us her time in this very generous way. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you.